This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Miles Danhausen Jr., writer and editor of the Peninsula Pulse. And today I'm, I'm very pleased to be able to, to have a, an important conversation for our listeners and for all of you who tune into this podcast every week. I'm sure it's a topic that you know a lot of our listeners deal with personally and that I've dealt with personally, but I have a great guest here to, to talk about it with Marty Schreiber, the former governor of Wisconsin, who is an author now of a book about the caregiving process one goes through when dealing with a loved one with Alzheimer's. Marty, thank you so much for coming up to the podcast studio and, and talking to me about this today. Well, Miles, thank you. Elaine and I love Door County. To be with you is a special privilege, particularly talking about this kind of a challenging issue. Yeah, and it, it really is. And, you know, and I mentioned that this is something personal to me. Some of our listeners may know this as well, but I, I lost my own mother to Alzheimer's a couple of years ago. This community is one of the oldest communities in the state. And got to say, it's probably on a, a monthly basis. I find out a good friend of mine or a family member of mine is dealing with something similar. A mother who has just been diagnosed with Alzheimer's or somebody who's already in the hospital with Alzheimer's or a grandparent. It just seems much more prevalent. And maybe that's because I've gone through it. So I, I recognize it more often, but it touches a lot of families a lot of people, but then it touches so many people in that family, so many of those caregivers. And that's what you've written about is the role of the caregiver and the struggles that the caregiver goes through, and largely based on your own experience caring for your own wife. Yes. And I tried to not talk about the trials and the tribulations. I tried more to talk about what can be done to help our loved one live their best life possible, mm. to try and help caregivers learn, cope, and survive. The disease, as you know, is a tragic disease. And if we don't understand this disease, and I contend that if Alzheimer's is bad, ignorance of the disease is worse. Mm. Ignorance of the disease by the medical profession, for example, who may not understand that when there is a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, there are two patients, the person living with Alzheimer's and also the caregiver. Mm -hmm. Many times caregivers, because of the great emotional psychological, physical toll, sometimes more times than we would like, would die before their loved one right. because it's so impacting on, on their on their well-being. And so my wife, Elaine, was diagnosed some maybe, I think, 20 years ago, and the symptoms began to appear some 22 years ago. The important point is that 22 years ago, Alzheimer's could not be cured or prevented. Today, Alzheimer's still cannot be cured or prevented, and yet the incidence of this disease is increasing. So because there is no direct answer, we caregivers and those with, with parents and, and those who have loved ones who are on this journey, we have to really think hard so that we can come to the conclusion. Our goal now, we're not going to be able to beat this disease head on, but our goal can be how do we help our loved one live their best life possible? And I think if we dwell on that for a moment, we're going to be able to get some kind of comfort, some kind of assurance, and also uh, the kind of good feeling that we can receive when we know that we are doing the absolute best in helping our loved one help live their best life possible. You hit on so many good points there, and it's something, it, it struck a, a memory of a conversation I had with Christy Wisniewski at the hospital up here in Door County, who has worked with in the memory care field for quite a long time up here. And I talked about how my dad was kind of struggling with finding resources and figuring out what to do. And she noted that, you know, with men, and a lot of times when you're talking about Alzheimer's, if you're talking about the caregiver, you're often talking about a man because it's just more prevalent in women. So it's often, a, and I think you talk about this in your book as well. And she had mentioned that a lot of times with men, they're, they're more stubborn and they want to find a way to solve it, to beat the disease. And it takes a while to recognize that that's not going to happen. And, and maybe one day it will. Maybe one day we'll figure something out and we can start talking about curing Alzheimer's or, or substantially better managing it. That would be 
fantastic. But as as of right now, we can't. And that's a really hard thing for people to grapple with. Again, I get to the point that because we can't fight this disease head on, I'm basically adding to what you are saying or trying to anyway. And, and that is we can't beat this disease head on. So now we men have to understand a couple of things. And that is that it is an act of courage to ask for help. It is a sign that you are not giving up to ask for help. And I'll tell you, uh, I have seen more hardship and pain and anxiety by people, men mostly, who just refuse to acknowledge this disease. <laughs> and one of the things that I, I try and help people with, and, and that is one of the most important things that finally came across to me was to join Elaine's world. So, for example, uh, Elaine, it didn't happen on a Wednesday. It happened on a Thursday. And I'm correcting you. It wasn't the Smiths. It was the Joneses. And also, by the way, why did you put the car keys into the dishwasher? And why are you asking me all of these questions? <laughs> I just told you 10 minutes ago what time we're leaving, and you're asking me again and again and again. Well, the fact of the matter is that our loved one does not know what they were doing. And so I would try and correct Elaine and so forth, and that increased our anxiety and our worry and, and depression. And so finally, I realized that it's Elaine's world, and I can't bring her back into my world. And so if I can begin to let go of this wonderful person who once was, yes, preserving the memories, but let go of this person who once was so that I can embrace now this person who now is. And once I began to understand that, I began to be able to feel more confident that I was able to help her live her best life possible. Mm-hmm. And that leads to the title of your book, My Two Elaines. I imagine that's what you're, what you're getting at with that, is that it's the one you knew for so long, and it's the one who you are with in this moment now. That's correct. And uh, my first Elaine I met when I was a freshman in Latin class. She sat next to me, and I fell in love with her right away, and well, we dated, and we went steady, and we got engaged, and we got married, and four children, and 13 grandchildren, and she was the perfect person that anyone could ever have as a life partner. If I would campaign for public office, she would be the hardest worker, and if I would lose, she would never let me feel defeated, <laughs> and that is very critical for us to understand, that we can never let ourselves feel defeated Yes, we can feel that things aren't going right, but I think we always have to realize there are some things that we can do. The second Elaine, well, this was a woman 22 years ago who began to get lost going to and from places she had been going to and from for the past 10 years. Began to appear when as a wonderful cook, she would get recipes messed up so badly that she would cry. And so as, as this disease progressed, I began to better understand how I can help my wife live her best life possible. And one of, of the things that I began to realize was what I call in the book therapeutic fibbing. And uh, Elaine asked me once, how are my parents? Well, I said, Elaine, your parents are both dead. The shock on her face when she realized that, that she didn't say goodbye to her parents, much less attend the funeral, I promised myself I would never put her through that again. And so the next time she asked me, how are my parents? I said, oh, they're wonderful. I said, your mom likes working at church. Your dad likes the sports. Elaine said, that makes me feel so good. Well, that's mm. therapeutic fibbing. Yeah. Therapeutic fibbing. But there are two points on therapeutic fibbing. One is I tried it the first year of marriage. <laughs> and it doesn't work so good. <laughs> the second point is that you may not believe this, but when Moses brought the Ten Commandments down from Mount Sinai going way back, I took a look, I was with them, and I took a look, <laughs> I took a look at those Ten Commandments. Therapeutic fibbing was not among the ten. <laughs> so everyone should feel comfortable in knowing that, enjoying the world of this person who now is. Therapeutic fibbing or joining their world is something I think that is important to do. And, and yes, we can't tell a lie, and yes, we can't do this or that, but it still comes down to the point where if we want to help our loved one live their best life possible, Joining their world is, I think, a key. I totally agree. I mean, there was, I was in denial early on with my mother's diagnosis. And once I started to notice the repetition, the, the same questions or the same stories, I had to make a conscious decision to be like, I have to, this is the first time I've heard it. This conversation, the first time I'm getting this question, and even, you know, you're, you still get 
aggravated and sometimes sad because you're you're watching this progress in real time and yet it's much more effective you know in in the alzheimer's patients world that's the first time they're ever asking that that's the first time they're ever telling you so in that moment if you want to make them happier and healthier like be there with them in that moment because what i tell people and like once they're gone choke up a little bit here but i would gladly go back and take those repeated questions from my mother again. I would gladly have that same conversation for the 30th or 40th time again. So if you can think ahead and go, I can, I can do this. This is a small thing for me and a huge thing for her or him that can change that paradigm. As you're talking, I'm thinking about Elaine, of course, but I'm ready to go to print with this book because I'm concerned finally that I can do more and helping my wife. And so I wrote the book and I'm ready to go to print four weeks before, roughly before I go to print. I find a series of notes and journals that Elaine had been keeping since her diagnosis. And I went through those notes and journals. And as I read them, not only did I cry, but what also, uh, as I went through them, I realized that I never understood the courage that it takes for her hmm to be diagnosed with this disease to go forward, what, how tough that is. Right. But then I also never understood until I read her notes. And by the way, each chapter begins with some of the notes that Elaine had written to help people understand what, what this journey is like. But one of the things that you know occurred to me in looking at, at this was how much she depended upon me as her lifeline. She talked continuously about, and then uh, even getting to the point where she's, I'm sick and tired of him. I don't want him around anymore because he's stopping me from doing what I want to do. But the point of the matter is I was her lifeline, but I wasn't smart enough to know how important I was in her life. Mm -hmm. And so what I did was I made a lot of common mistakes that sometimes caregivers make, not getting enough sleep not having the proper diet, not getting enough exercise so that I would be healthy. All of the health factors that came into play, including maybe having a beef eater martini or two or three or four <laughs> after towards the end of the day, just so I could get through it. Yeah. And so that helped me understand. And so when I talk with caregivers about how best to help their loved one, what I say is, let's assume hypothetically that I win the multi-billion dollar lottery and I can take everybody that's hearing this on a cruise. Now we're on this cruise and one of them falls overboard. Well, we throw them a lifeline. They grab the lifeline, but it breaks. Now they're dead. Well, the fact of the matter is we are a lifeline to our loved one because they're hanging on with every possible strength of mental capability that they have because they know what's ahead. But if I'm the lifeline and I don't take care of myself and I, for example, become so harassed and un uncomfortable that my temper is shorter and I become irrationally irritable and all of those things. It's like I'm gnawing, I'm mm. chewing on that lifeline and I'm weakening it. And because I'm doing that, now it's time for me to help Elaine. I throw her that lifeline and it breaks. And it breaks because I was the one who was a male, maybe didn't want to ask for directions, maybe didn't want to ask for help, maybe didn't really think that it matters one way or another if my friends or neighbors would know. And so truly caregivers, we have an opportunity. It, it's not just all, you know, that hopelessness, but a chance, as you said, if you could listen to your mom, ask the same question over as you go back and retrospect, how important and how great that is. Now, so Elaine had this disease and lived with it for 20 years. 12, we were together in our home and eight years, the last eight years, in assisted living memory care. So we would have lunch as much as I could in the, the cafeteria. And so here, we're having lunch. She's beginning to cry. I said, Eileen, why are you crying? Well, she says, I'm beginning to love you more than my husband. Well, I didn't ask her what's wrong with your turkey husband, <laughs> but what that did for me was to show and, and to have me understand it is not necessary for her to know my name in order for our hearts to touch. Mm. And I have seen caregivers and their families become, at the moment, justifiably distraught because their loved one doesn't mention their name, but only have that be distraught for you temporary because they do not know our name. However, the poet once said, I may not remember what you said, 
but I will always remember how you made me feel. Mm. And so what we caregivers can do by the holding of a hand, by the singing of a song, by just being together, by giving a smile, what we are doing is helping them how they feel, giving them the kind of comfort and also the kind of reduction in, in anxiety that is so much needed. Now, I want you to know all of this is so much easier said than done. Right. Because this frustration creeps in and, and we, we see all of those things happening. But we've got to get a grip on ourselves because it's not curable and we can be so distressed that we become enslaved to our own lack of thinking positively. And so um, we can move forward in that. I should mention, by the way, they did think for a while that Elaine was getting better hmm. uh, and, and cured because we ate lunch, for example, in the cafeteria. And as we were eating lunch, this was another time, but as we were eating lunch, she looked at me and she began telling me over and over again, how intelligent and how good-looking I am. And so, <laughs> well, there was a doctor and a nurse sitting at one of the tables next to me. They looked at me, and they heard Elaine, and they said, Elaine is getting better because she knows her husband is intelligent and good-looking. <laughs> and so they wrote an article for the New England Medical Journal. Elaine Shriver is getting better. She knows her husband is intelligent and good-looking. Well, the people at the medical journal said, wait a minute. You have to show three things where someone is getting better. You're only showing two things. And so, all right, well, as time would have it, a little bit of time went by, and now Elaine are having a lunch again. And happenstance, the same doctor and the same nurse at the next table, we're, we're sort of talking. Now Elaine gets on one of these tangents. How did we meet? How did we meet? How did, Elaine, we met when we were freshmen in high school. I said, I fell in love with you right away. I knew that I wanted you for my wife. But I said, in addition to that, if any boy got within 50 feet of you, I bopped them on the head. And she looked at me and she said, you're a bullshitter. Well, anyway, now they have the three points about how Elaine was getting better. And so seriously, when Elaine, she did say that I was a BSer. So I said to Elaine, I said, Elaine, I said, that may be true, but let's keep that between you and me. And she no, no, she says, it's too late. Everyone already knows. So it's a tough disease. Oh, I wanted to chat with you and make sure we don't lose what we had begun to talk about as far as your experience and, and that of your dad relative to how you try and handle the journey. One thing that comes to mind to share with you, I had a friend who retired and was living a great life. All of a sudden, a massive heart attack, he dies immediately. And uh, it was tragic, it was just so sudden. Well. There was a funeral, and people came by to express their sympathy, their condolences. There was closure. There was closure. Well, what happens with a caregiver is there is never closure. And what happens also is I don't think we realize that there is this anticipated grieving, unacknowledged grieving, because basically from the time that we see our loved one begin to have their mind leave them, from that point we see our loved one dying a little bit every day, but we never really realize what actually is happening. We see it, but we don't really realize that internally we are in the process of grieving. Mm -hmm. And because we, in my judgment, because we realize we don't know we're in the process of grieving, we never, we never confront ourselves with it. Mm -hmm. And so if we can finally understand, yes, we are sad. Yes, we are depressed. Yes, there's anxiety there, but also I understand, too, that I am in the process of grieving. And so I've got to face that. And how do I face it? Well, I, I face it by making sure I have a good cry so I can, you know, deal with all of these grieving emotions. The Alzheimer's Association or the Aged and Disability Resource Center have counselors and so forth that can help us go through these different experiences as the Alzheimer's begins to take its toll. But I feel that I'm on a mission. And I feel that if I can help caregivers better learn, cope, and survive, that, that can make a difference in people's lives from the standpoint of dealing with some disease that is not curable and can't be prevented. And uh, for that, I'm very grateful that I have the opportunity to travel about, to visit, to talk with you, and to have written the book. And uh, just as a side note, I wrote the book 
a number of years ago, and then I said I was ready to go to print, and I found Elaine's notes. Okay, well, now I felt really good because I wrote my own book. I felt good, but then I realized I didn't even get Elaine in there. Well, now Elaine is in there with, with her notes and her journals, hmm. but I didn't think of my children. And that's another mistake that sometimes we caregivers make. We try and do it on our own. We don't incorporate as much maybe of our family as we could or should. And that's very important to do because I have four children and a daughter on the West Coast, daughter on the East Coast, and then two sons here in Wisconsin area. Elaine would try and mask her deficiencies of Alzheimer when my daughters would call. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they thought that I was the one who was slipping a little bit, you know, <laughs> mentally. And because I was able to keep them involved and to keep them up to date on what was happening, they also could come along with me, not only in helping me, but also could come along and deal with their own grief. Because that's one of the things I am also upset with myself about, and that I didn't soon enough draw my children in and try and better understand their grieving and also better understand how they were looking at things as it relates to the journey they were on. This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by Door County Medical Center. Are you looking for a job in Door County with excellent benefits, culture, and potential for advancement through tuition reimbursement programs? Door County Medical Center is hiring. For more than 75 years, Door County Medical Center has been the leader in health and wellness for Door and Kiwanee counties. Their integrated medical center provides a wide range of specialties, including primary care, behavioral health, general surgery, the Women and Children's Center, the Door Orthopedic Center, the Door County Cancer Center, and more. To join the team, apply today at dcmedical.org slash careers. You know, you mentioned the, the grieving and kind of the, the grieving that goes on that you don't realize you're grieving as the Alzheimer's is taking hold. And I know that I thought, and I've talked to other people who said the same thing, because you're sort of going through this loss, and in many ways you lose this person twice, that you think you're going to be better prepared when it all ends, and then, then you're not. And then it really is you just go through it twice in many ways, and a little bit different kind of grief both times, but it definitely hits you a second time. I'm curious, what did you find? We've talked a lot about like people's unwillingness to ask for help and how important it is to do that. What were some of the resources that you turned to that were the biggest help for you that kind of changed your approach in your caregiving journey? Well, without question, the Alzheimer's Association. And I went to counseling and a few experiences. I was so troubled to realize that I had to put Elaine into a home. And I'm meeting with the counselor and I say, I just cannot see putting Elaine into a home. And the counselor said, you're not putting Elaine anyplace. You are giving her an opportunity to be who she is now. And the counselor asked me, Did, you know, can Marty Schreiber's 24-7 nursing home take care of Elaine? Well, the answer to that was absolutely not. Right. You know, I, I couldn't sleep decent at night for fear she might go out in traffic. Uh, I couldn't get decent. It, it was just, well, caregivers know what I'm talking about. And so because of that, I better understood what was important for Elaine, and I then, almost like getting hit across the forehead with a two-by-four, I, Marty Schreiber, was taking on this disease, by golly sakes, and I was going to beat it and forget about what's best for my wife. Well, how stupid is that? I was amazingly stupid, and finally I realized, wait a minute, why? What, what is our goal? When our goal is to help our loved one live their best life possible, it's not for Marty Schreiber to say, hey, what we did was we, we kept our wife home for as long as we could because that's what I wanted to do, even though it was harmful and not good for her in the long run. So, you know, there's an old German saying that you become old so quick and smart so late. And uh, <laughs> one of the reasons I wrote this book is let's assume hypothetically that someone is now going to be on the Alzheimer's journey. And what I would want to say as they would begin this path, I would say, I've been there. Please sit down with me for a few moments and let me just share with you what I have learned. Should you choose to use any of it, that's okay. But if you could please understand that it's so important to join their world, if you could please understand some of the symptoms of this disease, if you could please understand how important you are in how your loved one can 
feel good about what is going on in their life. If you please sit and visit with me a little bit, that makes me feel so good. And uh, if I could be doing that, which is what I am doing right now, it's a good life for me and something mm -hmm. that I'm so pleased to be able to have, uh, have a chance to play a role in. We're coming off of a week with the Alzheimer's Association of something like a six, seven city tour this past week. And the number of people, whether it's Rhinelander or Anago or Appleton or Sturgeon Bay or Green Bay, that are affected by this disease are very significant. And people have told me that this book has helped them better understand and to help them realize they are not alone. They are not the only ones who get angry and frustrated. You know, they're not the only ones who are feeling in despair that we're on this journey with them. And they tell me that that helps them. Mm. Well, I mean, when you're going through it, the smallest turn to the dial can make a big difference. You're just making minor improvements to somebody's life and their approach to it. And it can make life more enjoyable. And if you're doing that, you're, you're impacting two people. You're impacting the caregiver and the person they're caring for. And, and probably trickling down to the rest of that family and, and the other loved ones in that, that household. So, and I got to say, thank you for writing the book and for putting the thought into it because when you go through losing someone to Alzheimer's, it's such a long journey. It is such a difficult journey. And you realize how hard it is to find what you need because each Alzheimer's case is different. You know, that it's not, there's not a very specific treatment plan that applies to all Alzheimer's patients. So you really got to, figure it out as you go to some extent. And then once you're done with that journey, it's, it takes so much out of you that it's really hard to think about it more. I found myself just not wanting to think about it for a long time. So for you to put the effort into, to put this book together and, and to share your story and help other people, I just wanted to say thank you for doing it. Well, don't thank me because it's something I really want to do. And uh, in Milwaukee, there is a cop's frozen custard. And uh, mm -hmm. you can get a double hot fudge sundae with extra nuts and extra cream. And if I tell you I had one of those and you give me a lot of credit, that's baloney because I really like those. <laughs> if I lose 10 pounds and say, that's really great, well, then I would accept that because <laughs> it's going to be really hard. But for me to be able to talk about this disease now and to be able to thank the volunteers of the Alzheimer's Association or the people who work with aging and disability resource centers or the people in churches that are trying to create more dementia-friendly atmosphere. This disease is not what I call a chicken casserole disease. But hypothetically speaking, and this is what makes, makes caregiving challenging among the things, and that is if I have open-heart surgery and people know that I'm going to need some food because I can't prepare myself, they'll bring me a chicken casserole. I fall and I break my hip. I can't get around. People know I can't do that, so they bring me chicken casserole. My wife has Alzheimer's. Well, if there's one thing worse than Alzheimer's, it's ignorance of the disease. And they are ignorant of the disease because maybe I didn't help them understand it. But because they're ignorant of the disease, they don't know what to say and they don't know what to do. And because they don't know what to say or what to do, they draw back. And because they draw back, now I'm even feeling more alone. And maybe I'm even feeling deserted and abandoned by my friends of 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, all because I didn't do the kind of job in helping them understand a little bit more about that disease. And so if people can learn you know, just a little bit more about it, I want to just touch one more point about this matter of caregiving. We know that disease is regressive and, and how it continues to take away from, from our loved one. What happens as caregivers, we caregive and we think we finally got it. We think we've, everything is okay. And we wake up the next morning and the disease has regressed or progressed, depending upon how you're looking at it. And what did I do wrong? Well, so now I work and diligently, I don't go out with my friends. I, I pay more attention to Elaine. I, maybe I don't eat as much and so forth. And then she's still not getting better. And so what happens then now I'm beginning to feel guilty because no matter what I do, I'm not making things any better. Maybe I'm not understanding that I'm gnawing away at my own lifeline and so on. And so it really comes down to the fact that if we can better understand this disease, I think we're going to have a better chance of helping our loved one live their best life possible. Well, 
Marty Shriver, thank you so much for taking the time coming up to Bailey's Harbor to share this story, for writing the book. And uh, hopefully it helps lead someone to a place where they can ask for help. Well, we hope so. I do want to mention that we do have a website, My Two Elaine's, all one word. And there are two versions of the book. One was put out by myself and uh, what they call self-publishing. So I hire the own printer and so forth and so on. And uh, in doing that, there are 55,000 books of that that have been printed. And I only have 54,900 <laughs> left in my garage. <laughs> the second book is the one that was put out by Harper Publishing. Okay. And they got a hold of my book that I self-published. And they felt that what the message was in that book was important enough, important enough that they would want to take this book nationwide. And that was indeed a compliment, but at the same time, something I was very pleased happened because I want to try and make that difference. And I don't know if we have enough time, but just quickly, the first version of the book, as you can see, is lighter and, and it's a paperback version, whereby the uh, the Harper book is a hardcover. Mm. The paperback version has pictures of me and Elaine and also different, um, <laughs> you know, Bobby Kennedy. It shows Elaine uh, dancing with the president, Jimmy Carter, and so forth. But what happened was that we were running out of these books about a year ago, and uh, I called the printer, and I said, I need more books. So not only does he get it done on time, but he got it done early. And so one thing I want to sort of brag about to you is the fact that people have picked up this book, My Two Elaine's The Soft Cover, and they started to read it, and they couldn't put it down. And that's quite a compliment. And I th that the reason really was because you see how that's shiny and lacquered, you know? Well, what happened, the printer that did not let that varnish and that didn't let it dry, and it became sticky. So people picked up the book and they started to read it and then they wanted to put it down and they just couldn't put it down. And so it was cold outside and they tried to put their coat on, and but they couldn't put the book and their arm through the coat at the same time. And they had to drape that arm over their shoulder, you know, that part of the coat and so on. But just so you know that people aren't the only ones with problems. I've got my own. But I am so grateful for this opportunity to be able to visit and you know, we hope that uh, with this tough disease that the caregivers can... Oh, let me... If I, I don't want to be taking too All much. Right. Okay. But this disease, you know, I, we, we mentioned trying to help our loved one live their best possible life. Also, we talked about it's not what you said, but how you made me feel. And this disease takes us to places we never thought we would be. Did I ever think I would be sitting here with you, you know, in Bailey's Harbor and talking about this on April 20th today is, I believe, in 2023. Never did I think that. And what I try and share with people, that it does take us to places we never thought we would be. And some of those places sometimes help us, and they fill up the gap, the hole that is left, was our loved one is in the process of leaving us. But the best example that I can give you uh, about, you know, having ending up someplace where you never thought you would be I was elected to the state Senate back in 1962, and I was a member of the state Senate Education Committee. And what happened was uh, that there was a meeting in Washington, D.C. that I was supposed to go to on education. And if you would take a 5.30 in the morning flight out of Milwaukee, you could go to Washington, D.C., you could have the meeting, and you could come back the same day. So that was what I was in the process of doing. It's now five in the morning and the plane is boarding and there's this very distinguished gentleman in front of me and you could tell he, he was important. He had, you know, he had cufflinks and he had his initial embroidered on the cufflinks and expensive attache case and this, oh my gosh, he, he was really important. But anyway, so as he gets on the airplane, he goes to the flight attendant and he says, does this plane stop in Detroit? Oh, she says, yes, sir. We stop in Detroit, people get off the airplane, people get on the airplane, and then what happens is we go on to Washington, D.C. Well, he says, I have to get off in Detroit. She said, fine. No, he says, I have to get off in Detroit. She says, yes. No, he says, I'm inclined to fall asleep. If I fall asleep, I'm going to miss a really important meeting. Will you help me get, yes, I'll help you. He says, do you promise you'll get me off of this airplane in Detroit? She says, yeah. He says, do you pop? She says, sir, I will help you get off of this airplane in Detroit. Well, now we land in Washington, D.C., and here this distinguished gentleman is getting off of the airplane as he is getting off of the airplane. He walks to the flight attendant and he berates her like I've never heard anyone berated like that in my whole life. I felt really sorry for her. 
So after he had left, I walked up. I said, oh, I said, I feel bad for you. That man really, really, really was angry. I've never seen anyone so angry. And she said, he was angry. You should have seen the fellow I put off in Detroit. (laughs) (laughs) So what we try and do when we visit with caregivers, we try and give them a chance to laugh. Because many caregivers forget about the fact that they can laugh. And mm-hmm. again, we become so entwined in this emotion, understandably so, because it's human nature. I mean, how can you live with someone for a number of years and all of a sudden see, all of a sudden see their brain disappear without that, that having an impact on our emotions? And so once we better understand this disease, maybe even have a chance to laugh at some of the situations and move on from there, I think it can help people get through this a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, Marty, thanks again. It's a great message. It's a great lesson for people. And thanks so much for taking the time to come here, but also to to spread this message across the, the state. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, joining me now on the podcast is Christy Wisniewski. She's an outreach specialist with Door County Medical Center, has a lot of experience dealing with issues regarding dementia and Alzheimer's and similar diseases with patients in Door County. Christy, thanks for making the time to come up and talk on the podcast. Thank you, Miles. I wanted to talk to you because, you know, as we talked to Marty Schreiber about the struggles and some of the fears that people have when they have a loved one or they themselves have to deal with Alzheimer's or dementia in some way. And I also wanted to provide people some hope, some connections to the resources that we have in Door County and some context maybe for other folks of the scale of this problem and how it impacts people. So, you know, in Door County, if you look at our population, general ballpark number, just trickling down or extrapolating from uh, national estimates, it's pretty fair to say there's anywhere from like 800 to 1,100 people dealing with some form of dementia or Alzheimer's at any given moment, correct? Correct. I would say that's about accurate for Door County. And each one of those people has a couple of, minimum of a couple of caregivers that are also being affected by this. Exactly. And you think about that, what are those caregivers are, that's a heavy burden on a lot of our population. And that isn't always just a spouse. It can be a son, it can be a daughter, it can cousin, or in some cases it's a mother or father. Mm -hmm. I've seen that as well. So it has a heavy toll. Right. In fact, I wanted to add to that a person who, according to the Alzheimer's Association, Alzheimer's disease can progress for as long as 20 years. And the average person that has that diagnosis in their 70s can spend almost 40% of their time in the severe stage of Alzheimer's Hmm. disease. So that means they require moderate to complete care in all daily activities. And typically that comes from an unpaid caregiver, at least one. So... We're right on there. Wow. And you think about that and, and having gone through it by myself, you, you think of, I was fortunate my mom for many years was able to function at a pretty high level. But in the back of your mind is always, what do we do if, what mm-hmm. do we do when, what kinds of resources and where would, where would you say advise that somebody start if they're thinking somebody might have some of these symptoms or, mm-hmm. uh, or they've been diagnosed, where do you go first for resources when you walk out of that room and find out this devastating diagnosis. So fortunately, in our small community, we have quite a few resources. If the person comes into our memory clinic or meets with me through our memory care program, I connect them, we connect them right away with supportive resources, both in the hospital and in our community. So um, in the hospital, we have care managers, both nurse and social work care managers that can be that bridge of communication between both their care team, their providers, but also connect them with supportive services, help them with appointments, communicate with family members, so really be that bridge of support. Our memory clinic offers specialized therapeutic services following a diagnosis, so that might be cognitive enhancement with an occupational therapist or cognitive enhancement with a speech therapist driving evaluation. We do that. <laughs> oh, that's got to be fun. <laughs> oh, that is a challenging one. And, but it's one that, you know, we don't just say you can't drive anymore. You know, yeah. we, we definitely go through all of the concerns and connect with understanding and, you know, try to assist the person in determining how they're going to continue to get to where they need to get if they can't drive anymore. And mm-hmm. that's a big if. I mean, some yeah. people newly diagnosed can still drive. You know, it just we just have to stay on top of different cognitive changes. Sure. Mm -hmm. What about for the caregiver? What kind of support or even just like 
support groups mm-hmm. are out there. So, again, we are very fortunate to have a number of options in our community. So I'm going to start with our support group. So we have a dementia support group, both for people diagnosed with dementia and for care partners. And that meets once a month down in Sturgeon Bay at United Methodist Church. It meets consecutively, but in separate rooms. So people who have dementia can really talk about what they've been coping with, what they've been experiencing, and learn from each other and problem solve and learn what they can do about it. And then care partners can talk about what they've been coping with and learn from other care partners. I lead the group with people who have dementia and uh, social worker Erin Sakla leads the group with care partners. So it's very well led and it's a great group. But then there are other support groups. The ADRC in Door County offers four support groups, as far as I know. They have two, one in Sturgeon Bay and one in Southern Door. And just, mm-hmm. I'm going to pause you there for a second just to clarify, the ADRC that's the Aging and Disability Resource Center. Re- Aging and Disability <laughs> yep. Resource Center. Years ago, it would be called like the Senior Center, right? Correct. Uh, yes. And I just want to clarify that because I think a lot of people don't. I fall guilty to this. You use acronyms or oh. things like that, and if somebody isn't already familiar with that organization, they may not know what we're talking about. But the ADRC has a wide range of programs available at a pretty deep events calendar at any given time meals, support groups like this. Mm -hmm. There's exercise facilities. They actually have lunches that they do both around the county and and in their center. And even if you just want to go see a cool building Mm -hmm. and go down and check out the ADRC, it's in the former highway shop in Sturgeon Bay. Not something that you would say, hey, I want to go check out this place in the former highway shop. It is beautiful, the rehabilitation (laughs) and the commitment that the county made to doing that. And the food. Yeah. (laughs) The food is excellent. Um, And that is a recommendation we almost always make to people newly diagnosed and any caregivers because the ADRC has so many resources. Mm -hmm. Also, it's important for someone with dementia to stay stimulated um, because that's exercising their brain and maintaining mood. Um, so we want them to go over to the ADRC or participate in any of those opportunities that are in the community. You know, when I talked to you once a couple of years ago, you mentioned that, you know, and more often than not, it's the the woman who has Alzheimer's and it's about 60, 40, I think it's the breakdown, 60% women, 40% men. Is that other way around actually? So, well, I take that back. Women are living longer and the number one risk factor for the development of Alzheimer's is age. So yes, eventually, a woman may develop Alzheimer's disease, but women are often the care partners. And so they are the people that are experiencing more depression, more anxiety. Perhaps they are skipping doctor appointments so that they can continue to provide care. They may not be managing their own health conditions. And so that can escalate into the development Mm. of Alzheimer's disease. And you said that when when men do function as a caregiver, it can often there's a, a stubbornness or sometimes a reluctance to ask for help. Mm-hmm. How do we help people get over that? How do we, I mean, I, I know personally, like when somebody, you maybe try to hide it, you try to, mm-hmm. you don't want to ask for help. You don't want to admit to people that, or tell people that your spouse has this condition because mm-hmm. it's, it's a very difficult one to deal with. It's not like a broken arm or something like that. You, so how do we get people to reach out for more help? Yeah. (laughs) You know, you can't just say, hey, there's a support group you should go to because not everyone is a support group person. Sometimes it's connecting that person with someone they trust. And that might be an informal support. It might be someone that they go get coffee with at you know, the gas station or McDonald's, or it might be, you know, a church clergy person or, you know, a family member. But we, so when I'm working with caregivers, we're talking through all of that. Who are these informal people in your life that you look to? And would they be someone that you might be able to schedule a visit with, Mm -hmm. you know, go out for coffee? So there's that. I also connect caregivers with other caregivers if there's permission to do so. And then they can talk through those individual experiences Mm -hmm. that they've been having. But it's tricky. You have to look for opportunities to say, hey, you know, this really helped me. Why don't you try talking to this person or right. you know, trying to make it a little bit easier? But like you said earlier, every case is so different. Mm-hmm. So you were talking about trying to kind of meet people where they're at. Mm-hmm. And, and you almost have to be specific to them, unfortunately. It's not like exactly. the general advice we might give for the cold or the flu. It's like, oh, get your shot. Right, it's, right. Yeah. It's very different for each person. Right. So we try to get creative in how we're offering supportive resources. Um, we have the support groups. We have the individual connections. There's a program called Powerful Tools for Caregivers, which we have offered. It's a six-week free workshop. 
We are hopefully going to be offering that again in the fall. We collaborate with the ADRC on that one. Nikki Sherig over there is going to be facilitating that with me. It's an evidence-based workshop, and it's specifically to provide tools for caregivers to meet their needs as well as meet the needs of the person they're caring for. So it's wonderful. It's a great opportunity. One of the things that helped me a lot in understanding what uh, my mother was going through is a virtual dementia tour. Yes, I meant to bring that up too. Want to talk about that a little bit? Yep. So a virtual dementia tour is a hands-on experience of what it might feel like to have dementia. So the program that we offer provides what we call garb. It's just material that impairs your senses. So they're, you know, greasy sunglasses and some gloves and some other material. You put these items on and then you are given a list of five tasks that you have to complete in a room that is set up like a typical bedroom. And the person goes in that room. They There is a monitor in there just to make sure that they're okay. Uh, <laughs> and they try to complete the tasks. And then we pull them out after 10 minutes and we debrief with the person. And very often people will come out thinking, that's why that happens. That's why my loved one responds the way they do, because they have experienced how it feels. I certainly came out of it mm-hmm. that way. I mean... And, mm-hmm. and you mentioned that you, you put gloves on, you put glasses on people, you put a set of headphones on. Mm-hmm. What do those, for the listener who has no idea what we're talking about, what do those things do to help mimic some of the symptoms of dementia in, in any form? Okay. So the glasses impair vision, which specifically with Alzheimer's disease, vision is impaired. You get more of a tunnel vision effect where the person is unable to recognize peripheral stimuli coming in. It also darkens, color may change. With the hearing, we're trying to impair the person's ability to process or comprehend information, which occurs with Alzheimer's dementia and other dementias. With the gloves, and then we put some inserts in the shoes as well, mimics pain that the person may be experiencing but unable to communicate to us, and it comes out in the form of a behavior instead. Mm -hmm. So it's really important that we experience that in order to understand, oh, they're not really just being difficult. (laughs) Maybe (laughs) they are having an underlying cause, like pain or hunger or fatigue or something that we need to look into. they just can't articulate to you. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's interesting. We'll watch people in that room, and they end up just sitting the whole time and now the person comes out understanding that's why my loved one doesn't want to get out of the chair you know it's not because they're not motivated it's because maybe they're having pain or they're tired or something's going on or confused and it's easier to just be safe and still than moving around yeah i know one of the things about it once you get the the headphones on the glasses on hear the the kind of white noise in the background Mm -hmm. and then somebody says gives you maybe four or five instructions Mm -hmm. really quickly. And then you go in the room and you're like, oh, well, with all this kind of stuff going on in my head with this different noise and my vision's not the same, trying to focus on what they just told me. Did they tell me to, there's change on the counter. Was I supposed to count that? Or was I supposed to put that change into the change purse? Mm -hmm. Or there's unfolded laundry on that table. Was I supposed to fold that or put that in the hamper? Yep. And it's little things like that. And then what struck me about it, because none of those are major life decisions. It's not mm-hmm. like in that instance, you're not forgetting the directions to a house or you're not deciding whether or not you should drive or not. Mm-hmm. But it's those little things. And you think of all those decisions and that confusion adding up throughout an entire day. Right. Hundreds of those little things. And it taught me a lot about, you know, just addressing someone one question at a time, mm-hmm. slowly slowing my pace down and taking the time to get closer to where that person is at. Yeah. And when I left it, I was like, you know, I, I took it because I was dealing with a loved one with Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. But I think in a community like ours, where we are a much older community, where if you are a server in a restaurant, a dozen times a day, you're probably interacting with somebody who is in that population that's more vulnerable to yep. a dementia situation. Or you may not know it, but you might have been serving a couple of people today who are in some stage of that. Mm-hmm. You know? And you might have a better understanding. Like I, I, I thought it was, as soon as I finished that tour, I thought back to all the times that I was just in a rush as a bartender mm-hmm. or as a waiter. Mm-hmm. And I was like, come on, give me your order. All right. Yeah. I'm just going to come back later. And I didn't take the time because I was in such a rush. Right. And I thought after going through that experience with people I loved, I was like, Oh, that slow down. If somebody takes the time to just hold on just an extra pause and, and listen, 
you can make people's days so much better in all these little ways. Yeah. So I think of it as something, whether you're going through it personally or not, I think it's something that would be very valuable for almost anyone to go. Yeah, I am so impressed you remember all that because <laughs> that was a few years ago, I yeah. think, that you went through that. But it is so powerful and makes such an impact in yeah. that way. I wanted to put a plug in. You mentioned the bartender and you know working with people. The ADRC now has a dementia specialist. Her name is Sierra Woodsack, and she is providing education for businesses oh, and helping great. businesses understand what to expect from someone who might have dementia, how to communicate and work with. And so, you know, I would recommend communicating with her if you're interested in learning about that as a business owner. Yeah. I mean, in Door County, we're all about service. We're Mm -hmm. all about greeting people and being hosts. And when so many of the people we're greeting and hosting Mm -hmm. are older and may have some ailment of any kind, like just help us be a better host. (laughs) Exactly. And by doing that, we are getting the resources out and the communication out. I mean, those businesses start understanding what's out there for them, what's out there for their patrons and just another way to communicate in this geographically challenging (laughs) community. (laughs) Um, I guess before I let you go, where would you point someone to start? Like if they don't want to, you know, they're not going to just show up at the support group probably, but Mm -hmm. if they want to just Find out what resources are available. Mm-hmm. Where do they go? Call me. Okay, there you go. <laughs> but there's a lot of options. Again, the ADRC is a one-stop shop for all resources. But so if someone was to call me, I collaborate with the ADRC and other providers. And then I've been working in the field long enough that I have a good knowledge base of resources. I do memory screening completely free of charge. I spend about an hour with a person going over all of the possible causes of memory changes because I don't want anyone to jump to the conclusion that they have Alzheimer's disease. There are so many reasons why memory changes occur. So we want to get to the bottom of that. And the outcomes from a visit, you know, they can go back to the doctor. They can, you know, stay with the person. They can end up in our memory clinic if they want to. So give me a call. Um, And with regard to caregivers and resources, Again, I like to meet people where they're at and identify their current needs and give them the resources for those needs and then stay in touch and just be that resource for that person and connect them. I'm a connector, (laughs) so just (laughs) connect them with whatever they need. All right. Well, Chrissy, thanks for taking the time to talk about this. Thanks for coming to the podcast and for doing the work that you do, because it's it's a difficult, but I'd imagine in the best cases, a very rewarding position to be in. It is very rewarding. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.